Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today I'm speaking with Riley Lewis, who's a third year PhD student at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she studies astronomy and astrophysics. In this episode, we'll talk about Briley's experience as an REU student, or research experience for undergraduate, her love for science communication and science writing, and mental health in grad school. We'll have links to some of Briley's science writing and science communication work, a reading list she mentions in the episode, and some websites that explain what exoplanets are and a little bit about astrophysics. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. My guest is Briley Lewis. Briley is a third-year PhD student at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she recently completed her master's and is studying in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Before that, she received her bachelor's in astrophysics from Columbia University. Briley is super interested in science communication and science writing. Thanks for being on the show, Briley. Thanks for having me, Joyce. It's exciting to be here. So, Briley, can you give me a little summary of what your research is about? Yeah, so I work on a technique called high contrast imaging, which is a way of actually taking pictures of the disks that form planets and of exoplanets themselves. And can you give uh, those of us who aren't astrophysicists an idea of what an exoplanet is? Yeah, so an exoplanet is just a planet around a star other than our sun. Um, Most of the time we find these from indirect methods, meaning we look at the star, the planets around, and infer there's a planet there, like by seeing the star wobble or seeing the light of the star dim as a planet passes in front of it. But with direct imaging, we're actually taking a picture of that exoplanet, so collecting light from the planet itself. An exoplanet, by definition, is kind of like a planet in our solar system, but we don't call the Earth an exoplanet just because we say the Earth is special? Oh yeah, so if we were in a different solar system, then we'd call those our planets and everything else outside of it would be an exoplanet. Okay. So it's like exo exterior. Yeah, exactly. I see. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So how did you get interested in exoplanets and like, how did you find yourself studying astrophysics? Yeah. So I grew up liking sci-fi. I I read a bunch of sci-fi books when I was a kid, but I actually always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, (laughs) because I, I've always had dogs and I love them. Like my dog sitting on the couch, looking at me with the sweetest face right now. So I thought when I was a kid, like, yeah, I want to take care of dogs my whole life. Like I love them. Um, and then I got to middle school where they make you start dissecting things for biology. Um, and I was the kid who had to run out of the classroom and throw up because I couldn't take it. So Uh, there went the dream of being a veterinarian because I'm super squeamish. And so I, being a very, you know, like kind of type A child who needed to know everything, I was like, I got to figure out what to do with my life. And one of my friends gave me one of Neil deGrasse Tyson's books of essays about space. And I just thought it was really cool. So I wanted to learn more. And then I learned more in high school by doing things like Science Olympiad. And I was like, this is still really cool. I like it. It's like all the sci-fi stuff I read. And then I just kind of kept doing it through college. And it was always something that I enjoyed enough to want to keep knowing more. It was always cool to know that much about the universe and exploring the things in my sci-fi books, but in real life. Oh, how cool. And were you doing research while you were in undergrad or um, anything like that in the astrophysics space? Yeah. So I didn't do any research in high school, which I know people do now. And that's that's wild to me. Like the fact that people are getting started that early. I'm like, good for you. Let's please not make that a prereq for getting into grad school. Um, (laughs) But I ended up actually getting involved in astrophysics about halfway through college. Um, So I, I went into college thinking like, okay, I know I want to be in some sort of science. Um, And I tried some computer science classes and I was in my physics classes. And I, I really liked the astronomy and physics ones the best. Um, little did I know that I would basically be a computer scientist because every scientist does have to program nowadays. Um, but I decided on astrophysics after taking classes and realizing I liked it. And then my older undergrad student friends were telling me like, oh yeah, like you can get involved in research 
because um, I'm a first-gen sciences student, so I, I didn't really know, you know, what the path was. But thankfully, I had some older students to guide me, and they helped me apply to research experiences for undergraduates, um, which are these National Science Foundation-funded programs that you can do research in in the summer. And I ended up getting into one at the American Museum of Natural History. So it's like, you know, this super cool institution in New York City that does a bunch of science communication and people don't necessarily know there are actually offices hidden behind the scenes where people do real science research there. So if you're ever at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, um, when you're like looking at the big like dome of the planetarium, if you look up, there are some little windows along the walls and those windows actually go to the science offices. Oh, how cool. I think I, I, yeah, I had heard of a, I think I know a couple postdocs at the American Museum of Natural History, but I had no idea they would like host RU students. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people don't realize when they're there visiting that there's like regular research going on behind the scenes. Yeah, totally. And I, the, at least the astronomy uh, portion of AMNH is great about involving undergrads. Like I would say that the department was a large majority undergrads during the time I was there, or at least we were the ones that were like there all the time. Because um, there's a lot of faculty who do like joint appointments with AMNH and other universities in the area. Wow. And so for your RU, were you like looking in telescopes or like what kind of work were you doing? There? Yeah, so that was actually my first introduction to high contrast imaging. Um, and I worked with a group called Project 1640. So that's one of the pioneering instruments for direct imaging of exoplanets. The PI of that instrument, um, her name is Rebecca Oppenheimer. She's fantastic. And she was looking for RU students and I knew I wanted to do exoplanets. So she pretty much showed me everything about how this instrument worked and then actually took me to the telescope in California that the instrument was on, which was Palomar Observatory in San Diego. And I actually got to help with the observing runs where we would, you know, use this major telescope in order to try and find new exoplanets. Oh, wow. So you're you're like uh, looking at data that's coming into a computer, but the telescope itself is on the other side of the country or was on the other side of the country. And then you went to go visit the telescope? Yeah. So we actually had to go to the telescope to observe with it. So there are some telescopes where you can observe remotely, like Keck in Hawaii. But this telescope, you currently pretty much have to be there still, uh, at least for the instrument that we were working with, you had to be there. So we'd go there for like a week, spend a few days, you know, setting up the instrument, and then a few days, a few nights, actually, observing, um, and then we'd come home. So you are in California, your RU advisor, and you got, like, you guys are up all night looking at images? Yeah, we would be looking at computers most of the night. So no one really told me that being a scientist was being on a computer all the time, um, but it is, um, at least for my kind of science. And so we'd be in this little room full of computers um, and those computers would you know, have all of the data of like what's going on with the telescope and it would show us the images once they were taken by the instrument. Um, one kind of fun fact about observing is it's really cold in there because you can't like heat the room because then that would, you know, have heat escape towards the telescope and that would mess up your seeing because you need really like still air in order for the telescope to actually see clear images. And you want the telescope dome to be the same temperature as the outside because if there's a temperature differential, then you, you know, get air movement and that's bad for your images. So... <laughs> It stays pretty cold in there. Thankfully, we were in California. Are you up high, though? Palomar's not super high. I mean, so some places have, you know, observing rooms that are separate and, you know, different conditions, um, especially if they're in more extreme environments. But this one's in Southern California, and it's just a little room that's, like, right off the telescope. So it's not super warm and cozy. I mean, it's not frigid, but it's not super cozy. Oh, how funny. That's like, I mean, I think it's probably a way bigger deal for something like this. But yeah, some of the instruments that I used in grad school, they were also like 
in frigid basements for like similar reasons I mean like yeah that instruments you just like need them at such a a specific temperature that doesn't move around so so there were actually um there were actually other research experiences I did as an undergraduate after that so that was just my first one um so I started with that that summer and since I was lucky enough to be in the city, you know, year round because of school, I actually got to keep working there, which does not necessarily happen with REUs. So I ended up working there for the rest of my time at Columbia, which was really fun because by, you know, the end of two, almost three years there, um, I felt like I was really part of the group and I I missed my friends there. (laughs) Um, And I ended up doing a second summer program too that wasn't technically an REU, Um, But it was run by a group called Space Telescope Science Institute, um, which is actually this, uh, it's an institution in Baltimore that pretty much runs some of the telescopes for NASA and deals with like archiving all the data. Um, And one of the people who works there, who I ended up working with, actually was a team member on the New Horizons mission that went to Pluto. So I got to play around with Pluto data for a few years, and that was pretty fun. So did you, like, when you were doing this research as an undergrad, like, were you discovering new planets or, like, getting better images of existing ones? Like, what was kind of the output of that research? It was a little complicated. So the goal was to look for planets around other stars, but it turns out the type of exoplanets that we can see with direct imaging um, are actually not that plentiful. So because of the current limits of our technology, we can only see planets that are particularly large, um, so bigger than Jupiter, and particularly far away from their stars. So, you know, like the outer planets, nothing like the terrestrial planets we see. Um, just because those things that are further out are less likely to be like drowned out by the brightness of their host star. Um, and the bigger they are, the brighter they are. Um, that only applies to direct imaging. Every method of finding exoplanets has its own limitations, but for direct imaging for the project I was working on, yeah, it turns out that those things are just not that plentiful. So we didn't end up finding any exoplanets when I was there. Um, but I learned so much about how those instruments work and that's part of, you know, what I am working on now in grad school. So I guess it was kind of a lesson and sometimes you don't find what you were hoping for, but you still learn things along the way. Yeah, what a great summary of what science is actually like. Yeah, people think it's all just like discovering things all the time. And I'm like, no, it's failing over and over and over and over again. Like my grad school advisor says, every time I'm like, nothing works, he's like, welcome (laughs) to academia and to science. Like, If you're failing, that means you're trying at least. Of course you're gonna fail if you're trying something that no one's tried before, trying to answer a question no one has an answer to yet. Yeah, totally. So now your graduate research, are you doing something similar? Like looking, yeah, like how does that differ from what you were doing um, in your undergrad research? Yeah, so now I've been working on something a little more technical. So I've been working on the actual data processing algorithms that we use to look at high contrast imaging data. So um, instead of, you know, doing the, I guess, exoplanet science half, I've been doing the more technical instrumentation half um, and trying to come up with a new algorithm that we could use to process this data in order to find fainter planets. I'll be really excited because this will be my first paper from my grad school work. All my other ones are from undergrad work right now wow and having any from undergrad is a big deal I feel like yeah that's super true I got really lucky having like a lot of great people I worked with that you know I guess i working on the New Horizons mission team it's very easy to you know collaborate with others because you're already on a mission team um and so even though I was you know like kind of not as in it as people who had been there since the beginning I still worked with so many people it was an incredible experience um that was actually my first first author paper was for Pluto stuff wow that's so awesome it was so fun and did you like find that experience overall quite positive like people were friendly yeah so I've been really lucky in my experience in astronomy so far in that everyone I've worked with has pretty much been fantastic and welcoming and encouraging 
Um, I've been lucky to have really great mentors who, you know, believed in me and reassured me when I was <laughs> feeling all the imposter syndrome. Um, and also, you know, just a lot of peers who helped me through figuring out what academia and astronomy are like as a field. Um, as someone with, you know, no background or or like family knowledge of that. Um, and also astronomy as a field is actually pretty progressive, um, at least compared to physics on the whole. Um, like people think about physics as, you know, <laughs> not a fun place for women and minorities. Um, and I think sometimes people lump astronomy in with that, but at least in my experience, there's a lot of, you know, very thoughtful effort being put into how we make the field of astronomy more welcoming. Um, and there's a lot of people who are just really excited about science communication in astronomy and, you know, sharing their love of space. Um, so I think, I think it's been a pretty great place to, to work so far. Wow, I love that. And, it, you know, I... Yeah, I hope that eventually that'll be like the default will be like amazing experiences with mentoring and things like that. And it's really nice to hear that your experience has been good. And yeah, it's also like I've heard people mention recently that there's like kind of like microclimates in science where some places like that people are mean and then in other areas people are really wonderful so it's really nice to hear that astronomy is on the kinder side and a bit of a bummer to hear that physics isn't but you know hopefully they're getting it together a little bit definitely um and you're right it does vary place to place too in you know the exact climate um but i've been lucky to be at places that were particularly welcoming um i mean they're there are, there's still a long way to go, like a long way. I mean, I have a lot of privilege coming in as a white woman. So there's a lot of yet unresolved issues in, in our field. But at the same time, I'm proud of the progress that we've made so far. And the fact that people are trying for the future, just knowing that there's this effort and this, you know, I guess, younger generation of, you know, like my I guess, cohort that's in grad school now, and then a lot of earlier career faculty um, who are just really conscious of mentorship and inclusion and all of these really important things to make science welcoming. So how did you end up deciding on UCLA for grad school? Did you know kind of going into undergrad that you'd go to grad school? Or can, can you talk about how you made that decision? I had absolutely no idea that grad school even existed when I went into undergrad. Um, I remember my first year of undergrad, I was just like, what's happening? Where am I? Well, there's so much going on. Um, and trying to get a handle on, you know, everything that was just so new to me was a lot. Um, and so my friends who were a few years older than me in undergrad, they kind of told me like, okay, here's what, you know, career tracks usually look like if you're staying in academia. These older undergrads, when I was there, really helped me understand what the process of moving forward in astronomy looked like um, if you wanted to, you know, stay in the field and do the academia route. And pretty much if you wanted to, you know, whether you wanted to go into an industry job after or whether you wanted to actually that's not true so they pretty much told me if you want to be an astronomer as in like your primary thing is doing this kind of astronomy research you have to go to grad school that's just it um so they helped me figure out like places to apply and what the applications looked like and like what i needed to do in undergrad to prepare like research and the classes i needed to take um and we actually formed a club that still exists at Columbia now uh, called Blue Shift. It's this undergrad astronomy club that's basically like the undergrads taking care of each other and making sure that everyone knows, you know, what the path is when they come in. Um, and it's a lot of mentorship, like undergrad to undergrad and sharing of experience. And I'm always so amazed that it's still going so strong, like looking at all the new people that are there because everyone who was there when like I was there and we started it have graduated pretty much. And so now I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is an entire like four years of new people 
who are all, you know, engaging with this community knowledge and community care. And I just, I love that. Oh, that's so nice. I love that you guys formalized it. Because actually, like now that you mention it, I had a really similar like experience at Miami. Like I didn't know grad school was a thing. And then someone was like, well, if you want to be a scientist, you should plan on getting a PhD. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, um, and my friends were the ones, you know, my friends a year ahead of me were the ones who were applying to grad school and told me what that was like. And I saw the exact same thing with the undergrads at USC when I was there. Um, so it's quite common and I love that you guys yeah made a club that's still going strong yeah formalizing it was a, a very intentional measure that we were hoping would make it more accessible to more people so that it was more widely known about and then also um, a choice to make sure that it had that longevity where there were these formal structures in place that could keep it going even when the original founders left and it seems to have worked so far yeah, because if you are just relying on, like, personal relationships, that could end up excluding, you know, many people, and you might not even realize it. So it's a it's a really good point about, you know, formalizing anything, I guess, but especially in this case. Yeah, definitely. Having the, the structures for continuity um, was really important, and it just it fills my heart with so much joy whenever I see people, you know, just helping each other through and all of that, and making the department that I spent my undergrad at an even more open place for undergrads to engage with science. You had some experience with science communication, and you've also been doing some science writing. Can you tell me a little bit about those aspects of what you're up to? Yeah. So when I was an undergrad, Columbia had a great outreach program run by this absolutely amazing human named Summer Ash. So she was so welcoming to the undergrads and was like so willing to get us involved with the outreach efforts and help, you know, bring science to the community. And that's kind of what started it for me um, in terms of, you know, public outreach and speaking and star shows and that kind of stuff. Um, I've also always really liked writing. Um, if I wasn't in science, I, I had a, a moment in college where I was like, I'm going to drop everything and be a creative writing major. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people have those moments where they're just like in the midst of their major being kind of hard or like just a really long part of it. And you're just like, no, I'm going to just drop this and do something else. But it wasn't just like a joke, like, oh, I'm going to do something easier. It was like, no, I think I want to be a writer. I want to write a book. I want to write books. Oh, my goodness. Like, what if I'm a journalist instead? It was a it was definitely a moment where I, I seriously considered pivoting. Um but then science won out, um, partially because I was, you know, like three years into my degree. Um, and also partially because I was like, no, this science education, I can't get anywhere else. And I have to do it if I want to be a scientist. But I think I could get involved in some writing, you know, additional, even if I don't do that as a major. And thank goodness I was right. <laughs> so I then eventually found out that scientists, you know, do a lot of writing too. Like there's books written by scientists that aren't, you know, just textbooks or review papers. They're actually for public audiences. Um, and I, my best friend in college, Julia, she got me to take this science writing class with her. And I think that's what really changed my life for science writing and realizing the breadth of, you know, forms of science writing there are out there. Can you give us like an overview of what types of science writing there is? Like, cause there'll be science writing for like publications, um, like for academic science, all the way to like popular science. Like how do you view the field of science writing? Yeah, so I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I'm still getting started in, in scientific writing, but there's, you know, the really technical publications we have, like the research papers that are in research journals, those are usually behind paywalls, so people don't see them as often. And even if you can access them, they're not very accessible in terms of their writing style. There's a lot of jargon. Um, they're written with these long, windy, confusing sentences that sound smart, but they sound smart in the way of like, you know what you're talking about, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and I think pretty much anyone in grad school has probably experienced reading a paper in their field and being like, I know I'm a third year grad student, but I still don't understand any of this. <laughs> um, so those papers are really hard to parse, but there's 
a whole bunch of you know other science writing out there so there's popular science books um like i'm reading one right now by dr lucy jones about natural disasters um she's a solid earth scientist and she's actually going to be the keynote speaker at a conference i'm currently organizing which is comsecon los angeles so i told myself i was like i gotta read her book before that conference happens since she's our keynote um and then there's all sorts of science writing on the internet too. There are science writers who write, you know, press releases for NASA and other science organizations. There's people who write about science for online only publications like Medium or for magazines like The New Yorker. Um, and oh, The New Yorker really has my heart. I, I love that style of writing. I know it's sometimes like a tiny bit pretentious, but at the same time, the depth of their stories and the way that they weave a narrative while also telling you science, it just really, it's beautiful um, in my mind. I'm a pretty devoted New Yorker reader. Spoken like someone who spent time in New York. I know. It's like once I got the New Yorker tote bag, I was like one of us. And so there's all kinds of science writing ranging for, you know, people write science books for kids. Like there's these really adorable you know, like quantum mechanics for babies books that someone wrote that are so entertaining to me. What's your favorite type? I like writing for an audience that that reminds me of sort of my family. So one of the reasons that I care so much about science communication is because I come from a, a family where like I'm the only scientist. Um, one of my aunts has a master's in poli-sci, but other than that, most of my family hasn't gone to grad school and a lot of them also haven't you know gone to college um so at first it felt like when I started doing science like there was a gap between saying here's what's going on in my life and what I'm working on and what their understanding was and it just seems like why are we doing all of this if we can't explain it to people especially the taxpayers who are funding us and also on just a basic moral principle, like all education should be accessible. So we should have ways for people to get their foot into understanding this kind of science. Um, and yeah, I love that science writing really permeates all aspects of science. Um, even though sometimes people think of writing as an afterthought, like there are people who write press releases, there are people who write magazine articles, there are people who write documentation for code, there are people who write technical papers um, and then there's books and magazine articles and what else uh, review papers which are so important especially for students trying to understand the field and even more so textbooks like that's all writing um, and grants like we have to write for grants all the time so I think writing is a really undervalued skill and even if it is valued in some places it's not built like people just think, oh, you're just going to write this too. But then they don't have any training for it. So they're unprepared. And so the quality of writing is sometimes low just because we're not giving people the training they need and instead just throwing them into the deep end. Totally. So and you are working actively. So you're going to teach a course next semester on science writing. Can you like give me some teasers about like your outlook for science writing and like how you're going to teach this class? Yeah, I am so excited for this course. So it's actually part of a year long um, course for freshmen at UCLA that they call the cluster program. So it's an interdisciplinary course. And the one that I'm teaching for combines the evolution of the universe, the evolution of life and science writing. So this course fulfills students like science requirements, but also their writing requirement, like their freshman writing course they have to take. And so the first two quarters, the first one was astronomy and was taught by some faculty. And the second one was more biology and was taught by some faculty. And then the third quarter, what happens is everyone on the teaching team, both teaching fellows like myself and the faculty, we break out into different seminars where we take 20 of the students from the bigger class and teach a class on a topic that's more specific. Um, and so I'm doing one on astrobiology and science journalism. So aliens are a, are a topic that is often not represented well. Um, same thing with exoplanets, like how many Earth 2.0 articles have you seen? I've seen five trillion of them. Um, yeah. And so 
we're going to be looking at a bunch of different, um, you know, examples of science writing throughout the quarter. Um, and actually listening to some, to some podcasts too, just because I couldn't help myself. Thought it'd be a fun thing to throw in. So we're going to be talking about what makes for good science writing, um, some of the issues of ethics in science, because that sometimes comes up in our writing. We can't always separate the science from the humans doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And most importantly, the students are going to get practice writing, and I cannot wait to see what they do with this, but they're going to be writing their own sort of feature article, and I'm going to try and get them to understand how they could possibly try to get that published by, you know, sending pitches to different publications. That was actually something that was done in a science writing class I took at UCLA a few years ago, and I loved it, and I wanted to bring that to more people. So I, I pinched that for reuse in my course with these freshmen. <laughs> Let's say you have a student in your class who is like, writing sucks, I hate it, it's not fun, I'm here because this is fulfilling a requirement. Like, how do you um, kind of view that outlook, which I think is quite common, and how do you kind of, like, reach people who are like, yo, writing is terrible? Yeah, um, that can be hard sometimes. I am pretty happy to say that a few of my students who started off first quarter in our, like, pre-quarter survey, I asked them how they felt about writing, and a few of them were like, I'm bad at it, I hate it, this is going to be awful. And now that they've had more practice and that we've actually, you know, worked together on techniques and had one-on-one -on -one meetings to go over like their drafts where we can actually talk about what makes good writing it seems like less of a you know nebulous blob of like I don't know how to write um and like once they have the skills and they seem to feel a little better about it um and like any teaching like it is your job as the educator to motivate people as far as why they should care so in the very beginning of our first quarter we had a discussion on you know why science writing matters because the people in my class who do like writing are like what in the world science writing now that scares me like that sounds hard um, and so having an open discussion about why it matters in the very beginning to set that precedent of like this is why it matters I feel like really set the tone for this and there is sort of a self-selection bit because the people who are in my seminar for spring chose my seminar out of all their options. <laughs> um, so I think the people who wanted to do more writing may have chosen mine. We'll see how it goes. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. A lot of them, their writing has improved so much over the last year. Like some of them, it's, it's actually been a joy reading their essays um like seeing how much they've grown and like the best feeling ever was a student coming to my office hours being like okay I have questions on the essay um but I wanted to say this felt so much better than last quarter because I used what I learned last quarter in order to write this one and I, I had totally seen that when I read her essay and I was so excited I was like yes I'm proud of you too <laughs> you're doing great <laughs> oh that's yeah I love that and I love this focus on teaching people how to do science writing because I don't recall taking a science writing class I hope yeah I hope I'm not accidentally forgetting and like for me I think I you know mistakenly view writing as like a talent thing like one of my best friends has been a beautiful writing writer since we were in like eighth grade and I'm like oh like writers are born and they are Kate Murray and not me. And I, yeah, I really haven't even considered enough for myself that I can learn to write really well. And also that that's a really, like I laugh at that when people are like, I'm bad at math, I'm bad at art or music. I'm like, oh, you can learn any of these things. So yeah, you point out something so important because a lot of the people I know who are like you to know, my fellow grad students who are like oh I'm just so bad at writing this is the one part of the scientific process I hate is like writing the paper I'm like would you say that you were like you say oh I'm just bad at writing I'm always going to be bad at it yet I have seen you in a class while you're TAing be like anyone can do physics you just have to try I'm like where did that attitude go applying to yourself and writing but just like teaching like it's something that we just kind of seem to expect people to do. And that's so unfair because everything you need to, you know, build and practice. Um, like I saw something on Twitter the other day that was actually about art. And it was someone saying, 
sometimes you look at someone as an artist and you're like, oh, they're so talented. And it's like, you just don't remember when they sucked at it. Like, yeah, you can't, you didn't see that that time. We'll have to get some resources from you if you have uh, resources in mind for people who are already out of the school or the class taking portion of their career. Totally. Can I actually pitch one for grad students right now? Please. So if you are a grad student in STEM, please apply to ComSciCon. It's the Communicating Science Workshop for grad students. And there's different chapters all across the U.S. and actually some international now. And there's also a yearly flagship conference that brings together people from across the country. And so you can apply to any one of these ComSciCon conferences and they'll have different panels about different parts of science communication. And one of the key features of each ComSciCon is something called the write-a-thon, where you actually write an original piece and then get expert feedback and peer review, and they help you publish it. So it's a great program. I'm currently organizing the inaugural Los Angeles chapter, which is going to happen in April. Um, and how long will that last? Yeah, so the each conference varies. The flagship conference is like three days, um, usually in the summer, and then each chapter has a slightly different format. So ours, because of, you know, this whole Zoom world we're in, it's going to be two days, but separated by like a week. So it's, you know, you have day one where you learn some of the fundamentals and then you work on revising your piece in between and then come back for the expert review and some extra stuff on day two. Wow. Cool. So people can look for ComSciCom, which we'll link to in the show notes in their area. And they can sign up and attend and practice some science communication for a couple of days. Totally. Yeah, it's a fantastic workshop. I went to the flagship a few years ago and then have been involved ever since. Okay, so you have thought a lot about grad school mental health, which I don't think we've discussed that much on this podcast before. So I'm really, I don't know if happy is the right word to discuss it or like to, to use, but I'm really glad that it's coming up finally because um, it's something that a lot of people struggle with and something that I certainly struggled with. So do you want to, I guess, start by saying what your own journey has been like in grad school so far? Yeah, um, we just had our perspective visit for our, you know, incoming grad students. And in the sounds off topic, there will be a point, I promise. So we just had our perspective visit. And every time students ask me, you know, how was your first year? And I'm like, I don't know how to tell you this. It was it was bad. Like I didn't know what I was getting into. I was constantly overwhelmed. I also had, you know, an entire lifetime of untreated mental illness that just kind of came to the surface because of all of the stress I was experiencing and having to adjust to life in a new city, meeting new people, um, being in a different department and trying to figure out all the unwritten rules of how it works. Um, so yeah, my first year was bad. And it's always hard to tell incoming grad students that because they expect to say something like, oh, I mean, it was kind of hard, but it was fine. And I'm like, no, it was like one of the worst years of my life. Um, and I'm like, I don't say this to scare you. It's just like honest. And things got better once I actually, you know, started being honest with myself and with other people about how much I was struggling. Um, I'm lucky enough that UCLA has really great health insurance um, and mental health care. Like I know some campuses are not as great about providing mental health services, but my department here is actually really open about helping connect people to resources. And I think that's like the most important thing you can do for grad students. So I was able to find a therapist and you know find a psychiatrist and really start actually dealing with these things so that I could go through grad school without suffering. Like one thing about mental health is that I know a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about it and I totally get that because it took me a while to be comfortable with it like I've been in therapy for over a year um, which is actually not that long <laughs> but it's felt like a while um, and seeing other people talk about it is one of the things that helped me actually accept you know myself and where I was and what I needed to do so now I want to be one of those people who talk about it openly and maybe help someone else. Yeah, totally. And I think something you said that really resonates with me is that I think a lot of us like arrive in grad school, especially those people who are 
um, coming straight from undergrad, we arrive like in our early 20s to grad school. And it's a very different, it's, a lot of it is just your own perception, but it's a really difficult perception of like how, what the workload is. You have a lot of flexibility with your time in a lot of cases and you're learning how to navigate that and you're away from your friends from grad school and typically away from your family and friends from high school and you're like often having these weird like even even healthy relationships with graduate advisors I think can be really trying at first because there's a the power dynamic is I think bigger when you start and you're just like, what's going on here? And so any kind of underlying issue that you've had in your life that's not dealt with for one reason or another, if you're spending most of the time alone in your head anyways, that stuff really can come to the surface and you can be like, oh my gosh, this is a crisis and like what mm-hmm. is happening to me? And it's, yeah, it's like, it's a great point that like we just need to normalize like grad school is hard we're you know collectively wanting to make it more inclusive and Mm -hmm. like less traumatic for people but while we're still figuring that out it's great to go get a therapist for like the first sign of like something is really wrong here yeah I just tell incoming grad students I'm like hey at least here therapy's five bucks so just do it like just just go do it just start out Like, I know that there are in a lot of places, you know, barriers to actually accessing that kind of help. But for people who like come into my department, I'm like, there's no excuse. We have an abundance of therapists in this area and it's literally $5. So like, just go for it. Um, And you brought up a point that I I totally want to talk about, which is that even if there are supportive people around you, you don't necessarily know that they're supportive when you first come into grad school, like especially with your mentor, like they might be, I mean, they are in this position of power, which can feel so scary to navigate at first, especially since you like barely know them when you're coming in. And actually like talking to my advisor about the mental health issues I was dealing with was like one of the scariest days ever. And I totally cried and I was like, I'm so embarrassed that I'm crying in front of you right now. And he was like, it, it's really okay, I swear. Um, but doing that was better because now I actually can be more open about when I'm struggling. And I mean, he was great in the way that he responded to me sharing this information and really encouraged me to do what I needed to take care of myself. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've been, I've had a generalized anxiety disorder for basically my whole life, um, but didn't really deal with it until like a year ago. Um, and so dealing with anxiety and depression in grad school is really serious and I people say like oh mental health in grad school is bad and like yes there are memes about it and they're kind of fun sometimes but at the same time it's like it doesn't have to be that way like it's nice that we're sharing it and there are these memes that we can bond over now like don't get me wrong I love the grad school memes um but at the same time I just really wish that we didn't have to struggle so much that it could just be a place where we could learn and feel supported yeah, it's like it's like we yeah, we we want to normalize yeah, seeking help when we can, but also what are these like underlying massive issues that are causing everyone to have a like or not everyone, but many people to have really big mental health crises. And- it's it's like the jokes about how students will be like, "Hi, all of our mental health is terrible." And then the university response is like, "Would you like a meditation break?" <laughs> have you thought much about what could have been done in your first year differently or could be done differently in grad school to kind of not have this like massive traumatic struggle when people enter I don't I don't have any ideas myself so it's fine if the answer is like I have no idea I mean personally like I was gonna have a traumatic struggle no matter what because when you've had undealt with mental health issues for like 20 something years like that that's just gonna get you no matter what like you're gonna deal with that at some point so for me, that just happened to be my first year of grad school. Um, it was like my tipping point. But at the same time, it's like, if we could make it easier for students to know that they're supported without having to like test those waters and be scared first. The grad students in my department are really open about talking about mental health. And I think that that makes it very clear from the get-go that, you know, they are someone that people can talk to and can help them find help and just knowing that those people are there to support you and they're not going to like judge you and tell you you're 
crazy or you're not meant to be there, like knowing that they are safe people to talk to and reach out to, I think really helps. And um, same thing with my advisor, like I now realize that it was just totally me being anxious and that he was actually really welcoming all along. Um, <laughs> but I think the more explicitly that we can say like, yeah, I've dealt with this. A lot of us have dealt with this. It's not a problem, you know, that is a problem with you. It's it's something we all deal with. Like you are not broken. This is just something you're dealing with and you'll deal with it. Like, and I'll help you however I can. Yeah. And there are trained professionals who are literally here to, to help. Especially on university campuses. There are usually some trained professionals. Like take advantage of your university's resources. They are there for a reason. Um, and I know sometimes they're bad. Like in undergrad, I tried going to <laughs> go into our counseling and psychological services and it was not an awesome experience. So I totally get being wary of that. But I know I did want to. Yeah, I did want to say like, yeah, I've had a meh and like an amazing therapy experience or therapy experiences. And so your mileage may vary. And also, you know, a lot of therapists tend to be white. And so I wonder, too, about, like, the lack of representation in therapy being weird. Because when you're going to, like, bear all to a therapist, like, you know, you really need them to be kind of relatable if possible. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you are, if you are, like, looking for a therapist, it's also important to, like, you know, call around a little bit, which is, like, huge activation energy at that time, I realize. But if you can kind of get through and find someone you do kind of gel with it's very worth it and therapy's not always accessible so there's definitely issues with it and more than anything we just need to make it make the expectations of grad school clearer and do things to actually make it a more you know sustainable system where people aren't struggling so much and I don't totally know how to do that um I feel like I read so many books about how to create more caring communities and I still don't quite know how to figure it out in academia because some people are so entrenched in the way things are yeah I so agree it's like yeah there's like a fundamental like maybe it's like um it's like a lot of people or like the academic system really like sets you up for like achievement addiction like you're constantly striving to like the next ladder rung and then whenever you're you know below the next ladder rung or whatever it is or you're struggling it can you really feel empty there's not enough of like celebration of like the day-to-day -day, like we're teaching we're doing science and like it's okay that every day isn't a milestone and I, I I don't know for me that's something I'm thinking about this week is like is that part of the problem like that we don't value enough of the day-to-day -day work like I don't know I, I feel like I agree with you but I just don't have any solutions you know what I mean like yeah I yeah I've yet to figure it out because I feel like I don't know it feels like I haven't had in a way the bandwidth to really figure out you know these institutional problems totally. because I've been busy with survival and with trying to figure out how I and my direct community members can thrive so if you are listening to this podcast and know <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you have answers yeah we are looking for those answers I feel like everyone's looking for those answers the only it's like there's I've been able to rule out things I'm like okay we can agree that like one time yoga breaks not the answer yeah that's not it and I bet someone is you know there's there's people working on everything it's like all right we just got to go find those people exactly like I, I know that there's got to be people out there who are specifically doing that. And I'm lucky to have been in community with like a couple of them in my field so far, like the people who are actively trying to make change and make things better in terms of equity, inclusion and mental health. Um, but yeah, I, I always love meeting people who think about these problems and think about, you know, visionary futures in which things might be better. Um, yeah, I actually, I have a whole reading list for, uh, like, you know, envisioning the future uh, in a sort of radically caring way. Um, a lot of work by uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, who is an incredible activist and scholar. Um, 
and then a lot of other people that she's in community with. I actually just made my reading list of this, of all the books I've read that kind of relate to this general topic. So I'm happy to share that if you're interested. Yes, please do. Yeah, we'd love to have that book list and, and share it. It's great. I actually, one thing on that reading list. So one of the things that I've gotten to do in the last year that has been just like a really cool, unique experience is, so I, I've been writing with Astrobytes for a few years, which is this website that, you know, publishes accessible summaries of new science papers in astronomy. And as part of that team, we always have like people take on different roles in the collaboration in order to make the collaboration run. And we recently came up with a new position of the ombudsperson. So, so universities often have things like this, like an ombudsman, which is basically someone who's neutral and confidential and you can go to as a way to resolve conflict without using, you know, structures that perpetuate cycles of violence like policing and stuff like that and so we started this ombudsperson position and me and another astrobytes writer kate story fisher we came up with this you know framework for how we wanted to deal with things and that came up in the collaboration and how we wanted to resolve conflicts and it was informed by so much of this transformative justice work that has been applied elsewhere in you know communities across the country um and in activist spaces and yeah so that reading list also relates to that and that you know conflict resolution transformative justice role that we now have in that collaboration it felt like this really inspiring like step forward to me of like yeah there are these people who are there to help resolve conflict and like have this clear framework that's set out in a you know just in a in a way that does not perpetuate the same cycles of violence and helps to actually restore relations between people um thankfully we haven't actually had any problems to deal with yet because the astrobytes collaboration is pretty chill <laughs> um very welcoming so but it was this really cool thing to work on to just come up with this you know statement of what our goals were and how we would handle conflicts um so yeah i think more more places could do with something like that to help these interpersonal conflicts so like the last question I can ask if you want is like, and which I realize is probably like the most horrible question for most grad students is like, if you want to talk about your future plans or I don't know what my future plans are. I really don't. And I've finally gotten comfortable with not knowing. Um, everyone always says like, oh, yeah, you've got to have like a five year plan. And I'm like, well, I got four more years of grad school. So that's four out of five taken care of. Um, as of right now, I know that there's still other scientific topics I want to explore. Um, I want to keep writing. I finally started doing more freelance writing beyond Astrobyte. So I started writing for Massive Science, which has been really cool. Um, if you're a grad student, they actually do SciComm training too. Um, and then they pay for their articles once you're trained, which is awesome. And then if you want to get, you know, more experience, there's also Astrobytes isn't the only one of the Byte sites. There's a whole bunch in different fields. They're all part of this like Byte size family. Um, and yeah, so that was like really where I got the bulk of my first writing experience and training. And now I'm trying to get myself out there more. And all the futures that I can imagine for myself right now involve me doing some science, but also some writing and some teaching. So I don't know exactly what that career is going to look like yet, but I would love to actually, you know, bring more science writing education to scientists. And yeah, it's like, I wish that I could just teach a class for the grad students right now. I feel like that would be great if someone let me. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what my future job will be, but I have started to identify the elements that I wanted to contain. Um, and that feels like where I need to be right now. I don't feel the need to say like, yes, I want to be a professor at this institution. Like, no, I, I have a range of possibilities that I think I could be happy with and I'll refine them as I keep going through grad school. Um, one thing I definitely want to make sure to say is like, I know I've been very cheery about my experiences so far, except for the part where I like said my first year sucked. Um, and just because there are a lot of things I'm excited about doesn't mean that it isn't hard daily. Um, yeah, like, I, I know that I have, for the most part, had a really good experience in astronomy so far and in science. Um, but that does not mean that a lot of it wasn't hard. Like there's so not like I'm just going to come on here and you know tell you about all of the worst parts. That's not how podcasting or writing or social media works. We tell you about the fun stuff that we get excited about. So 
my disclaimer is yes, there have been lots of hard times too. So if you're not excited about science right now, totally fair. I have those days regularly where I'm just like, I want to take my laptop and I want to snap it in half. Um, but today I get to talk to Joyce. So no, it's an exciting day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I guess, yeah, have you found this year with COVID, like especially kind of I mean, I feel like a lot of people have found it especially draining, just like none of the fun parts of people's jobs, kind of. Yeah, Zoom meetings, I'm super done with. Um, I've started trying to make them into phone calls so I can walk the dog while I am talking to people. Um, But other than how much I truly deeply hate being on Zoom right now, um, I've actually kind of loved working from home um, just because I get to be in my in my comfort space and you know, budget my time how I want. And I mean, I also have snacks whenever I want and my dog. So those are both great. But I've really appreciated the flexibility that it's afforded me um, and feel very lucky to have been able to, you know, isolate at home for basically a whole year. Like I, most of my family hasn't. So they've been going to work and they've been like, what are you up to? And I'm like, well, I worked and then I read a book because I don't leave the house. <laughs> and they just don't understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, the Zoom part has been bad. Like, I will not disagree with that. And I definitely haven't been quite as productive, but I feel like I've made some much needed choices to actually balance my life better and take more time for myself. So this slowdown of a year has definitely taught me, you know, some lessons that I would like to bring forward into my life, even as we return to what we used to call normal. Yeah. Oh, when it, yeah, I know that you told me, I think you only work between like nine and five and no weekends, right? Some healthy work boundaries. Yeah. So I, I like only work during certain hours of the day during the week. And then I do not work on weekends. If someone tries to get a hold of me on a weekend, I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> so I just basically told people, I'm like, if I respond to you on a weekend, it means that I felt like it. It does not mean that I am available for whatever you want. Science is a job. <laughs> Yeah, science is a job, and I like it a lot. It's a great job. Um, But I've found that making sure I take that time on the weekend for myself has been so important. And then I go into Monday not feeling like I'm dying, you know? I'm like, okay, I'm ready to start again. Um, And same thing with the the hours. It's like I sometimes get to the end of the day, and I'm like, wow, I didn't get the whole stuff I wanted to. And I'm like, well, that happens sometimes. Like, I remember in first year where it felt like I had to get everything done at every second and it had to be done right away. And that urgentness that, you know, work tries to demand of us is really not, at least not for me, not good for like my spirit. Yeah. And it's a false urgency usually in science. Yeah, exactly. Like I I just had this reckoning one day where I was like, okay, if I publish this paper about something that like a very small part of my already small subfield is going to be really interested in like a couple days later, how's that going to affect the world? And it's like, it's not really. Um, It'll be all right. Yeah. And it's like the people who are interested in this, I'm already talking to because they're my collaborators. <laughs> like That's how this works. Um, so as long as you're working on it and like, I know it's okay to just do things to enjoy your life uh, yeah. and like, enjoy your friends exactly i want to i i want to yeah i believe these things and you know and then it's so hard to like action them, oh so so true so true and to be able to act on them is also a privilege um because a lot of people don't get to say like no here are my boundaries because they have to do what their job says and things like that but since some of us have the flexibility if if we are able to we should we should help yeah I'm trying to trying to build the world where theoretically everyone can have that kind of opportunity I guess it's, yeah what it's really all about yeah something that I, I try to keep in mind when I'm making those you know seemingly small choices for my own work boundaries is this quote by Adrian Marie Brown transformative practices that begin small will demand new societal structures so the large is always a reflection of the small so what we can do in our own lives actually can create the future we want that feels like a really nice place to end so thank you so much briley for coming on this show and giving us your time and your thoughts 
that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on our social media pages and we'll see you next time.